Welcome, everybody, to October, <laughs> which is a bit of a shock to my system. Uh, this is a weekly Friday Fireside Chat. My guest this week is a dear friend, an esteemed colleague, a mentor, a, a colleague, a just wonderful person, Peter Capelli. Uh, and Peter and I run into each other at conferences and academic things as well as more practitioner things i think once we were even like wrapped up in blankets on a mountain somewhere in like davos or something <laughs> so i recall you had members of your family there which was which was great too um uh, for those that don't know peter capelli he's uh, one of the world's most you know influential thinkers on the topic of human resources the workplace the changing nature of relationships between employers and employees he has a fantastic new book just came out not too fat a book so don't don't be put off <laughs> um, i read it on an airplane coming back from uh, denver and i can't think of a person who has a more timely perspective you know as we're all Everybody needs to be back in the office. Nobody needs to be in the office. Everybody needs to be, you know, an employee. Nobody needs to be an employee. I mean, we're just at this really weird, pivotal moment. Um, but before we get to that, I thought you'd find it fun. Um, so I was just at the American Staffing Association's big uh, Staffing World Annual Conference. And uh, Richard Walquist says to say hello. <laughs> and, but the whole conversation there was, you know, what does it mean? about work and and uh, you know what what should we be thinking about what what should be on our agenda and nobody seems to have a really great grasp of that so i'm i've really been looking forward to this conversation to get your uh, perspective so before we jump into all that maybe just be, tell our listeners a little bit about your journey and how you got to the interests that you have and at this point i'm happy to claim that rita was a student in my phd class uh, i'd like to grab her now that she's successful it's like you know <laughs> adopting adult kids who are already doing well <laughs> right along that class i absolutely uh, love that class right yeah good thanks um well you know i i've always been uh interested in phenomena not theory right and and that is not i, I don't recommend that as a career building move in the academic world you know because phenomena spills over across to disciplines and across fields and terrain and things um, so I've been interested in what's been going on in the workforce. Uh, we hear, you know, about every six months, somebody claiming there's a new normal, right? That there's something that's transforming work. And it's all been wrong so far. I mean, none of it's been true. Um, but this one, you know, the thing about this phenomenon, work from home, is that there is no sitting on your hands, right? If you're an employer and you've got people working from home. So at the moment, 19% of Americans are working from home who had been in the office. Um, at the peak, it was 40% uh, last year, but it was 70% of it was 70 of those who reported that their jobs could be done from home. So ruling out retail workers and, you know, people who are doing face-to-face -face things. So that was a big move. And, you know, either you're going to keep them at home or you're going to bring them back. You can't do nothing. Right. So the reason this is so important, as Rita was saying earlier, is you have to choose. Right. I mean, this is not something that um, you can just wait and see what happens. You know, waiting means you're keeping the status quo, which is people working from home still. Right. So and it is, as you say, it's a profound uh, change. So here's my example that I always think of with this. Uh, and I think I mentioned it in the book, too. If you think about Google which has spent many 
millions of dollars persuading us uh, what a wonderful employer they are, right? Uh, and some of that based on, most of it based on what a great place physically it is to work. What a fabulous campus and you can have all your meals here. We can take care of your dog. You can get your hair cut. We oh, pay- and they've got interior designers who do like like holiday themes in their oh, offices. They that. build sets. I mean, they're gorgeous. They're very elaborate. Yeah. And they paid subsidies if you would be willing to live close to campus so that uh, you would be there more. And they were quite explicit that that's the goal. Is It wasn't long hours per se. It was at the office long hours, right? And about a month ago, they decided 20% of their employees could go, just go away, go work from wherever you want, permanently remote. Another 20% could go anywhere in the world as long as they were reasonably close to some Google uh, location and office. The remaining 60%, you could take a month a year, not vacation time, regular time, and go work from wherever you want in the world. And a couple of days a week, you could also work from home. So this is a rather profound shift from a company telling people, you got to be here. It's super important to telling them to go away. Uh, And here's the third shift uh, that the biggest acquisitions of commercial real estate this past year have been by companies like Google, uh, particularly in New York. So they're buying commercial. $2.1 billion or something to buy like a big facility in New York. Yeah. In New York, I've forgotten which one it was. Maybe it was the Lord and Taylor building, I think, or maybe Amazon bought that one. Anyway, uh, the tech companies that are telling people you can work from home are also buying commercial real estate in a big way. So what the heck is going on is the complication. But let's assume Google is right, uh, that this is a smart thing for them to do in a business sense. Does that mean that they were wrong before, that the whole idea of having people together in the office was a mistake? And that you know the problem for Rita and me and our colleagues is we've spent our careers talking about how to make people productive. And it turns out all you have to do is just send them home. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wish it were that easy. It would be incredible, right? So well, you know, for a-, a lot of people, I think part of what I get frustrated by in the conversation is there's this, you know, narrative among certain of us that have a lot of privilege that home is conducive to work. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, Peter, but when my kids were little, uh, yeah. home was not conducive right. to work. Like my husband would take them for six hours. And mm-hmm. by the time he came back, I had basically organized my papers wiped the you know Legos off my desk, right. <laughs> maybe had written three pages of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I right. mean, it was impossible. And that's a good starting point for this is that uh, if we start looking at what we actually know rather than what we assume, right? And so if you look at the public opinion polls, there was a McKinsey survey in reasonably recent, I think it was August or so. And what they show is only 8% of respondents want to be permanently remote. That is stay home as we have been doing in the pandemic. Uh, 37%, I think it was, uh, want to go back to the office, right? And 52% want something that we're calling hybrid, which means neither of those two choices. Basically, that's all what that means, right? So the idea that there is a solution that everybody wants is a myth, right? Uh, And it's also patently not true that people necessarily just want to stay home the way they've been doing it. The other big issue is that even if you wanted to work from home the way you have been doing, you wanted to keep doing that, it's a really different experience post-pandemic than it was during the pandemic. And the simplest reason for that is now you would have to choose. So before, during the pandemic, we were all in this together, 
right? You had no choice. And uh, it was cute if uh, the dog is barking during your Zoom meetings and your kids come strolling in. After, and people are deciding to be in the office or be at home, it's a two-tier workforce now, right? And we studied this phenomena in telework for about 20 years. And you know, the research on this shows that frankly, people working remotely do worse off in their careers. They get promoted less, their wages are less, they're less satisfied, they're less engaged in the organization. It doesn't work out particularly well for those working remotely, right? Um, so that's why this is such a profound choice for individuals too. And people who say, well, I really want to keep working from home. Well, you're willing to pay a price for that career-wise, right? And the Silicon Valley firms in particular are, which I think frankly is just mean, they're saying you have to pay a literal monetary price as well. If you want to work from home, we're already saving money because we're going to take your office away. But in addition to that, you're going to have to take a pay cut. And why are they doing that? Honestly, because they can. I think that's the only explanation for that, right? So, you know, going forward, this is not going to be the same experience as working from home during the pandemic. And as an individual, you know, you need to think about this, right? Well, I think one of the more interesting observations in your book is that we really are in uncharted waters because most of the research that's been done on remote work is people who at one point were in the office yes, and now you know, are remote. We really don't have a huge amount of, of data on people who have been virtual. You know, that's how they work. We just, I mean, you've been very comprehensive in the book and I didn't see a whole lot of studies on that phenomenon. Yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, the people who are talking about how great this would be to continue doing it are typically people in the sort of middle of their careers. They already know their organizations pretty well, right? Um, for us, for me anyway, it was great. Um, you know, I'm working from home, that's fine, right? I have colleagues who I've never met who have never been in the office until maybe a month or two ago, right? For those folks, this has to have been a really troubling and difficult experience. You know, you've been working in a place, you don't know anybody and no one kind of knows you and you're trying to find your way through. And if you think about permanent work from home going forward, there'll be a lot of people like that, right? Mm -hmm. We really think this is gonna work, not so Well, clear. and I think there's a, you know, and there's this huge debate too about, oh, generationally people look at it differently, which I've always been a bit dubious about. I mean, people are people so. regardless of like when they were born. But there is, I think, an argument that you learn in an in-person setting about the norms, about what being, you know, what in this culture, what it means to be a good person or a reliable employee. You learn about, you know, who matters to whom, about, about right. <laughs> unsavory, though it sometimes is, what the organizational political landscape is like. I mean, all that stuff that yeah. um, I, I'm reminded of a, a comment pretty early in the pandemic by a colleague of mine who runs um, an incubator. Um, for a large, large major insurance company. And, and they're one of those incubators that's been given kind of separate facilities and handpicked people and let's bring different skills in. And the idea is to really bring different DNA into the company culture. And now all that's great. But come the pandemic, everybody had to go home. And she had made it clear with all her new hires that this was a in-person thing because they're trying to figure out these innovative things. And as you point out, there's 
there's a huge difference between jobs where you're basically working on independent tasks and jobs where you're working on collaborative tasks. And she made an argument, she made a, an observation to me that just struck me as so interesting early on in the pandemic. She said, you know, before when we were all just kind of together, we all sort of knew what was going on, right? And people could kind of come and go into each other's work days as, as need be. She said, now every day is a meeting. Yeah. And I thought that was yeah. so interesting in terms of the creative yeah. unstructured part of work versus the, the part that's sort of fairly formulaic uh, or that's more of an independent contributor role. Right. You know, I heard something interesting. I actually, I read this. Uh, I think it was the head of uh, PwC's uh, office in England. By the way, today, story in today's paper, the PwC has now announced that their 40,000 U.S. workers can all work remote permanently or at least however long permanent means to a CEO, right? Which is not so clear, which is a big story. But anyway, what this, uh, I think it was, man, I've forgotten who it was, said that was different is before the pandemic, people were often just catching up with him in the hall, you know, elevator conversations, people asking for advice and passing on things to him. If you want to do that now, you have to schedule a Zoom call with him, right? And that is a big hurdle. And one of the things he noted is, He's now quite disconnected from, from people. Now, we had a conference uh, uh, like this yesterday with a, a CEO, and she said, though, the thing I hadn't realized is she said that people just start to text her now. I guess she made her text available. And so she's now kind of overwhelmed <laughs> by people passing on information, but in a text form, which is you know not, not nearly as good. You know? mm. Um, one of the things, Rita, I did want to raise, which is also something we don't really know on this point, is what is it that people actually liked about working from home? We assume we know, um, but we don't. And one of the things I think that people liked the most is that they tended to be managed differently. Uh, and that is we gave them a lot more autonomy over what they did and when they did it, right? Which was a great thing uh, for them. And you talk Will about trust in the book. Yeah, you know, that, that right. people actually could not micromanage. You didn't right. have the option. So you kind of had to fall back that's on right. trusting your people. Yeah, that's right. Which we could do uh, in the office too, more of that. And if we're going to do it remotely, will we keep doing that? And that's a big question because there's been an explosion of investments in tattleware, you know, which are software that uh, basically monitors you all the time. And my colleague Sunny Tamby pointed out the other day that there's been a concomitant explosion of software that allows you to pretend that you're in the office all the time, right? That <laughs> apparently jiggles your mouse uh, every or sends a signal that you're there by jiggling your mouse every few seconds and things, right? So it's bizarre. I think if you're going to have people work remotely and you're going to try to monitor them like that, it's just a disaster. I mean, it's just terrible. Well, that's very Taylorist, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's like, like life in the algorithm. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the interesting things um, to, to come back to this, because, you know, yes, the pandemic, I think, is an inflection point that is a once in a generation um, change. But we have seen bits and pieces of this before. So I'll go back a few years um, to Yahoo when Marissa Mayer came in yep. uh, to Best Buy. Remember, there was this, they flirted with this results only work environment kind of thing. And both of those companies pulled back from those positions and said, yep. Yep. it doesn't work, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Yahoo had this, uh, a, I think, a quite idiosyncratic problem. And um, that they were trying to break a culture which had been created that they didn't like, 
and so it was necessary to bring people back to change the culture. You know, IBM got a bad uh, and inappropriate uh, accounting of their experience too. They had, you know, gone virtual a while ago. They had pushed out about 45% of their employees. The IBM joke, you know, when I was young, used to be IBM stood for I've been moved because they were right. doing good. And the joke after that was IBM stood for I'm by myself because you mm. were working remotely. And what they decided to pull back was uh, agile project teams because they could not, they didn't think, do face-to-face in a remote context. I mean, you couldn't have that kind of constant interaction of agile project teams by Zoom. Um, So, you know, I think it's raising a very good point. The, The one size does not fit all in terms of what people want. One size does not fit all in terms of how work gets done. But then this starts to raise other complications about how we're going to manage people. For example, let's say Rita gets is in a job where she has the opportunity to work from home, and I'm in a job where I don't. What are you going to do for me? Because it's a big perk for her, but I can't access that perk. What are you going to do for me? And Rita might say, as employees are saying in these things, okay, I'm working from home, but you know, I don't get to use the gym. You built this wonderful wellness facility for us here and I don't get to use it. What are you gonna do for me, right? So it's bumping up against all these questions of fairness, which often happen around the workplace. And you know, I, here's my concern for employers is at least can, I'm not a big, advocate of here's what you should do, because I don't think I'm smart enough to tell people that. Um, But I can for sure tell you, here are the problems you better think about before you go down this path. And what I see is there's not a lot of acknowledgement even of these problems, alone trying to think them through. So that's my... my Yeah, we're operating on just massive degrees of assumptions. So just on the topic of fairness, you have a new paper coming out in AMJ, I believe, which is titled Agency Workers for Performance. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe expand on that a little because I think the psychology of that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Pandemic, back to work aside, this whole what is the nature of the workforce? And, you know, we have companies, well known, very profitable companies with massive contract workforces. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I yeah. wonder about the logic of that. I really do. Yeah. yeah. So Google right now, you know, has half of its workforce or contractors, right? Which is pretty typical in the, in the tech world. And, uh, I, I did a little estimate or, or looked at other people's estimates, about 30% of the labor budget in a typical US corporation is for non-employees. I, interestingly, they're not necessarily contractors. They're often leased employees, which means they're employees of a staffing firm or some other firm where you are effectively becoming their co-employer, which why that is, is a, is a quirky question. So in this particular paper, which is more my co-authors Liat's uh, work probably than mine, um, but what uh, we found there was this issue of kind of attachment and engagement and how you think about yourself, your identification with the organization, uh, depends in part on how you are treated, of course. And the more temp workers we bring in to do work like you're doing, the more you sort of think of yourself as being like a temp worker. And so your identification with the organization falls and your performance falls as well, right? Uh, And, you know, you can see how a lot of companies want to have this both ways, right? You want people to both be on a very short leash 
and no commitments to them, but you want them to be committed to you and to act like you are committed. And, you know, this is unfortunately just not, not going to work. This is something to think about, of course, in the context of a remote workforce is the more you push people away, the less you see them, the harder it is for them to be committed. Because one of the things we know is people rarely are committed to a label or to a stock ticker symbol, you know, they're committed to the people that they work with. And if you don't see those people, that commitment begins to fall apart. Right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I think the, the comparative framing is really, really interesting because again, back to, you know, what, what do you pick up when you're physically together? A lot of those social comparisons, you know, oh, oh yes, someone right. gets this yes, perk right. and I don't, or somebody else yeah, gets yeah. invited to that meeting and I don't yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the commentators, Kathleen, I think says um, she's, she's talking about taking a job in Chicago where they're going to want her to move there, but she's reporting to somebody in the UK. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Where does this kind of decision-making come from? Yeah, right. Well, I think, uh, you know, earlier you put your finger on it. And and I, I wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review last year on this question. Is that One the, of the top um, must-reads for 2021. Uh, oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just come out. It's just come out. Oh, okay. They don't tell me anything. Um, uh, well, you know. <laughs> Thank you for passing that on. Uh, and that is, you know, this sort of optimization thinking, um, which is kind of just ignoring the human dimension. So let me give you an example about this. If you do a remote uh, workforce, that's kind of hybrid. So hybrid means you're sometimes in the office, you're sometimes at home. The big problem for the employer on this, it's hard to see what they get out of this though. But the big problem is scheduling. You know, how do we schedule meetings? How do we cover things in the office if we can all work from home three days a week or two days a week, right? What if we pick the wrong days, right? And one of the ways you could try to solve this is with sophisticated scheduling software. The other way you could do it with is an older technique, it's called flex time, which is basically the team gets together and works it out, right? Why should we spend a ton of money on software to try to dictate this from the top down when everything we know is the team working it out themselves is way more flexible. Uh, they're able to deal with these kind of equity issues, you know, what's fair and the give and take of this. They like it better, they're engaged in it more. I mean, you do have to worry about the group dynamics. So why are we going to software? Well, it sounds simpler to the people at the top. It sounds cheaper. And they're thinking, well, the supervisor now doesn't have to do this. Well, the supervisor shouldn't be doing it by themselves anyway, right? They're, they're just kind of the overseer over this, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of leap toward what is going to be cheap. Uh, and in particular, what might be a kind of optimizing solution, because that's like the smart thing to do. But it's not really the smart thing to do if you understand how people actually function, right? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the other myths that you explore in the book, and that I think, again, it's all over the map, right, is this idea of working from home, giving you better work-life balance. And, you know, in some cases, that's true. But in many other cases, it's not. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, <laughs> other responsibilities interfere. And we, you know, we know right now there's a massive um, child care catastrophe in this country, you know, the, the, yeah, right, right. just as the labor shortage has affected many areas, many of the care functions are just on their knees. They cannot get people. Right, um, right. And if you can't, if you don't have a working childcare yeah. system, 
you know, many of your, <laughs> many of your parents are simply not going to be able to continue. And overwhelmingly, that'll tend to be women. Yeah, no, that is a great point. You know, just as, as a reminder on all this in, in looking back on it, set the context, you know, in March of uh, 2020, we had 50 million people out of work which is almost a third of the US workforce, right? And most of those people got their jobs back 60% pretty quickly, uh, but a lot of people didn't. So the opportunity to work from home was a salvation for lots and lots of people. So initially, one of the reasons why this was seen so positively is because you're saving people's lives, right? I mean, your work life and your income and you're keeping society go, and this is a terrific thing, right? Um, it was particularly a lifeline for people with children because they were not in school and you could not have worked in any way if you, if you're, unless you left your kids at home alone, right? Which you didn't want to do. So, you know, that was a great thing. Uh, now, after that, going forward, is it still such a great thing? And so here's a couple of quirky things about this. Does it save commuting time? Of course. But it turns out, it's Department of Transportation evidence on this stuff, that when people are working from home, they're driving more uh, around their neighborhoods. They're running more errands and other kinds of things. So it, they're not in their car quite as much maybe as if they were commuting, but it's not zero, right? The other thing we know is that hours of work are greater when you're working from home. And hours of work push well into the evening. And this is particularly so for people with children, right? So there is a real second shift for people who are working from home with children. Is it still better uh, work-life balance and being in the office? It could well be, unless your employer starts to go down this tattleware software thing, right? Because the reason that it is good for work-life balance is because you have control over your time. That's the reason, right? So I can take a break, I can walk the dog and I can come back and do what I need to do. I can stop and let the kids in, get them started on what they're gonna do. And then I can go back and do my work. If we move toward this model where you have to be at your desk, you know, this many hours all the time, you can't do any of that. And then the work-life balance, I don't think is any better, right? In some ways it might be worse. Well, it's almost so, like piecework back in the early days of the industrial revolution, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> Again, Taylorism, you know, in its worst form, and you got paid for what you produced. And, right, and, that's right. You know, yeah, that, that was the that was the first week in our class, Rita, with talking about those things. Right, right, absolutely. <laughs> that's putting right. out system, right? You work from home, kind of things, right? So, yeah, um, the devil's in the details with these things, right? It could be a good thing for employees, um, at least on work life balance. It's not going to be a good thing in terms of your career. Maybe it's still worth the price. Okay, that that's perfectly fine. But you know, again, let's go in with our eyes open on this, right? Yeah. So just to to reiterate, in case people missed it earlier, the the research that you were able to compile in the book showed, sure, great work from home, but you're going to get promoted at a slower rate. You're going to get pay raises less. Right. You're not going to be noticed as much. And so if you're an ambitious person in career terms, that's probably not the track you want to take. And I would layer onto that. Um, this is this is one of the, the things that's been laid at the feet of women's careers yes. forever. That women have chosen to be less ambitious. They've chosen right. to not put in the hours. They've chosen this, chosen that. And you know, you really wonder how much of that is free choice, and how much of that is like there's no other alternative that works. 
Yeah, right. And this is an alternative that you're forced into, which is going to have worse outcomes. But let me play my um, junior labor lawyer hat here. I, I had a radio show for many years with a, a colleague who was an employment lawyer. So I feel I have contact labor law skills here just by association. Let's suppose you decide to have a remote work policy where people can decide to work from home. You say, fine, okay, we can do that. Um, do we think that the people choosing that option are gonna be equally distributed across the spectrum and demographically? I think probably not. My guess is it will be much more women uh, and women with children in particular uh, for the reasons we just described, okay? Now, you also know that those people are going to probably do worse in terms of career outcomes because this is what 20 years of research has shown. Okay. Can you say plaintiff lawyer? Um, because these are people with the same job title mm -hmm. who are disproportionately uh, women with children who are going to have quite likely worse career outcomes, right? I mean, you know, is this a problem? I think it's a problem. And I think, um, you know, you ought to think about this going in if you're an employer and think about what you could do about this. It's not easy. It's not an easy fix, right, on these things. But you know, in five years, if you get sued and you lose, I told you so, right? You should, mm -hmm. you should think about this, right? Well, and I think a lot of the questions about contract employees, you know, one of the big topics of conversation at the American Staffing Association was, you know, a lot of these companies are really afraid that there'll be a retroactive settlement, that these people they've classified as contractors actually shouldn't be, and that there'll be, you know, yeah. reckoning that goes back in time. Not yeah. so not just going forward, but it goes back in time. And I'll be interested to see how that. Yeah. And they're probably right because, you know, there's some studies looking at the, you might call this abuse of this, but how many contractors are inappropriately labeled that they're actually treated as employees, but they're. Well, I mean, I get this all the time. I'm sure you do when I do independent work, there's this whole form you have to fill out. Like, do you do this stuff for other companies Do yeah. you, you know, are you able to do all this right. at will? If you want to hire somebody to finish this project, is that up to you or is it up to the person who's right. replying? I mean, the, the forms are pretty clear. It just, it, do you, so do you think this is an issue of enforcement or? Yeah. Oh, for sure it is. So there've been studies of this and it's about 30% or so of employees who are contractors are inappropriately in that status, they're actually treated as, as employees. And you know, one of the reasons is most situations, the, the employers are not as sophisticated as the ones you're describing and have lawyers who will explain this to them. I can tell you with like our MBA students, they are shocked to discover that you can't supervise contractors. Mm -hmm. They believe that they're just like regular employees, right? Interesting. And even in our world of research, there are papers, there's a generation of papers on temp workers where they're effectively treating contractor temps, the same as employee temps. They're assuming that the temp is the story rather than the contractor or employee status, right? Wow. And that's a fundamental difference. So yeah, it's a lack of enforcement for sure. My colleagues tell me that uh, this issue used to be absolutely dead in labor and employment law. It was just, nobody dealt with this question because it never came up. Uh, and it became the hottest topic in labor and employment law. That is the classification of contractor versus employee, because so many employers were taking on contractors and effectively treating them as employees. Mm -hmm. Well, and we have the whole kind of 
I hate the term sharing economy thing, you know, these people that are basically shoved into markets that are very Darwinian and really Taylorist. Um, and, you know, Lyft drivers, Uber drivers, the DoorDash people, you know, the guys driving on bicycles in London. I mean, you know, if we had Upton Sinclair with us today and he was writing about the conditions a lot of those people are in, you'd get the same, I think, political outcry, public outcry that you got about conditions in the slaughterhouses. I mean, those are terrible jobs. Yeah, uh, in yeah. yeah they can be really terrible jobs. And as you say, uh, you don't have to do much to make them terrible. No. Uh, all you have to do is create this competition and wait for a downturn. And, exactly. uh, you know, people are fighting each other for the scraps. Okay. You saw this yeah. in part-time work in particular during after the Great Recession, where many employers, um, had jobs that could be filled by, let's say, three full-time people. Instead, they would use six contractors. Right. Or six oh, and then any country in the world that you go to where like employment law kicks in at a certain number of company size, like in France, I think it's 50. And so there are like hundreds of companies, each of which have 49 people each. Yes, right. right. So you're exempt <laughs> from that. Right. Or, or you're regarded as full-time if you work more than 30 hours a week. So we've got all these people working 29 and a half hours a week. And, you know, it right. just seems to me like, it's just so obvious, right? Like, shouldn't we have a society in which some kind of enforcement mechanism exists to say, yeah, hang on right. here, people. <laughs> but, you know, this is uh, the nature of, I guess, of laws is that uh, there are great uh, opportunities and rent seeking rent available if you can just skirt around those laws a little bit. But it does uh, indicate to you that uh, the intent of the law is not respected, right? That, that's, I think, my bigger point. That's exactly right. It's, it's, you know, it, it's, we'll get it's away with an obstacle to get around. Right? right. And it's an interesting ethical question because in other areas of law, like contract law, it seems perfectly ethical and acceptable to tell clients, for example, um, well, break the contract, pay the damages and go on. And no one thinks that's unethical, but is it unethical if you tell your clients, for example, look, just cut your employment numbers to 29 and then you can ignore all these obligations. You know I mean? Is that, ethical. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a difference between business contracts and once you start talking about people. Well, right? people's so, lives. You know. because people so I, actually, that is something I wanted to sort of speculate with you about because, so we've got this sort of once in a lifetime inflection point, but in the background law before that, we've had you know, lots of people, um, Zainab Tom, who would be very well known for this, Jeff Pfeffer to some extent, a lot of people talking about the, the fact that the way the relationship between you know employer and employees constructed especially in this country is in many cases just fundamentally broken and Zainab for example would be a passionate advocate for if we create good jobs and yeah. we yeah. supplement that with excellent operations that that can actually lead to sustainable competitive advantage where people are you know treated fairly and right have you know a, a basis to live a decent life mm -hmm. and what i wonder is you know are we are we sort of maybe at a point where employers are willing to at least listen to that argument i mean zainab would tell you and we've talked about this a lot she mm -hmm. says you know ceos aren't even aware of how horrible the jobs are in their companies they don't yeah. even know right I, I think that's right and and you know her her book and her work has sort of shown that you could actually make money by managing your people in a more sophisticated way and not being quite so cheap. And I'll put a plug that her book and her work is based on studies done by our colleague, Marshall Fisher, mm -hmm. um, who did studies of 
retail performance in retail stores. And he was an engineer. Uh, he wasn't doing this because of a deep commitment to to uh, human resource issues in particular. And he discovered that, you know, in a lot of retail places, um, they were really inefficient because of the last mile problem. That is, you know, getting things from the back of the store to the front. Uh, and this was really because of uh, employees. They didn't staff at a high enough level. They didn't pay people well enough to get people who are competent and able to do this. And that the stores that did actually made a lot of money. And uh, his, uh, um, anecdotes about this was when he would talk to CEOs about this and uh, point this out, they just deeply res resisted the idea that this was really a, an employee kind of issue. But I think what you're raising, um, and maybe we could talk about this in a year, because I've, I've written a book that actually started before this book, which is exactly on this question. And uh, just as a part of the future of the office, just <laughs> right. thank you. So the next one, uh, uh, is basically on this question. And it's about why are we penny wise and pound foolish about the way we manage people? And because that's really what we're talking about. And Zenef is right about this. If you ask CEOs, and I've been in this context with a group of CEOs and ask them things like, you know, what happens if, what does it cost you if you have a product delay or something like that, or a supply chain problem? We know what that is. So what does it cost you? What's your turnover of employees cost you? They have no idea. No idea. Right? And some of this is a human resource failing, right? That it's not that hard to calculate that. And you might say, well, it's really hard to get it precisely. You know, nobody's precise in business. Talk to your marketing colleagues. They give you their best guess, right? So there are lots of formulas out there for how to figure that stuff out. And if your organization doesn't know there's a cost to turnover, you're going to be managing in a really, really bad way, right? So, you know, we know a lot of these things are cheaper, Um to do if you invest in your employees a little more, if you hire more carefully. So here's a stunning statistic about hiring. If you look at hiring in the US, uh, what employers track to see if they're doing a good job is cost per hire and time to fill. Uh, they don't track, is this a good hire or not? So only about 25% of employers have the data that would allow them to answer the question, are we getting good employees when we hire? Well. You know, if all you track is cost per hire and time to fill, um, and you don't track quality, you'll hire in a really different way that is not going to give you quality. This is like rest assessing restaurants by how cheap it is and how fast do they give me the food. You know, we know who's going to win those, <laughs> you know, and it's not going to be the cute Finch uh, bistro in your neighborhood that's going to win that thing, right? So why do we do this? Well, that's an interesting question, um, but it's clearly a mistake. It's not hard to rectify. Let's just start measuring these things and paying attention to the numbers. So I say some of this is a human resources failing because they just aren't doing that and they aren't making people aware of the costs of these things, which is hard to understand. Well, in one of your pieces, um, this goes all the way back to 2012, right? You talked about, um, you know, big jobs myth, you know, that American workers are not ready for American jobs. And you point out back then, and I've been an avid advocate of this, which is that, you know, it's this overly restrictive hiring practices. Right. You know, right. By the time you get the computers involved in sorting out resumes, if the resume isn't precisely, you know, exactly purposefully what right. you want, it just gets tossed in the bin. Yeah. And I have been very passionate about this in terms of degree inflation, right? That right. lazy thing to do if you're a hiring 
specification right. writer is you say, oh, four-year degree required. And that just weeds out a whole bunch of resumes that you don't have to look at. So to me, it's like, like we're just being so lazy about the approach we take to bringing people into the organization. And we're not tapping into these labor pools that, you know, for whatever reason, uh, get blocked out. So for instance, I was talking to a senior researcher at the Brookings Institute, and she, uh, one of her remits is to study um, job quality in, in zip codes that are, uh, you know, poorer and, and not, not as connected. And one of the things she studied was networks. She studied networks of white men, networks of white women, networks of black women, networks of black men. And one of the most stunning results, and this was, this is on their website, so you can find it, was that a typical black man in their study, if, if he were asked, who do I turn to uh, mm -hmm. if I want advice about a job or if I need coaching to get a house or if I need you know, some important resource that your network ties would give you, um, that they had exactly one person that they could- One person, to. yeah. Well, one yeah. person. In contrast, the average white man in their study had 15. Yeah, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so this uh, goes back to yeah, <laughs> right? University of Chicago sociologist who started studying James Coleman and other folks, social capital, right? Uh -huh. And the, the idea, right, is, is who do you know in this context? I mean, back to the employer uh, issue, you know, why is it that we have these crazy title inflation issues, you know, that now, for example, legal secretaries need college degrees. Before the Great Recession, they didn't, why is that? Well, some of this is a failure, uh, a cost failure of getting rid of recruiters, right? So we don't think about this, but recruiters' main job was to tell hiring managers, forget it. You know, you don't need a four-year degree for this. And you're not going to hire people at that wage, right? And they were responsible sort of for getting hiring managers' expectations down. So right now, we push the problem all off onto hiring managers who don't hire very often. They don't know much about recruiting. And so they generate wish lists, right? And part of the related problem is we don't train anybody anymore, right? So we're looking for somebody who will have exactly the skills we need to step into this job tomorrow. So in this book in 2012, I wrote, which I should probably just drag it out again because it hasn't gone away, um, were some stories about uh, from human resource people and recruiters about what they'd seen. So one of my favorites was somebody who told me that the employer was looking in a produce industry for a black olive specialist, somebody who understood black olives. And they said, could it be green olives? And they, and they said, no, it has to be black olives. And apparently the difference between green olives and black olives is if you just keep green olives along, you know, around, they become black olives, right? And so this person said, no, uh, you gotta be a black olive specialist, right? But if you read a job description, if you wanna educate yourself on the reality of this, pick up any job board and just look at a job description and you'll see the most narrow, uh, set of restrictions about what they want in terms of work experience that would allow you to step right into their job with their clients with no ramp up time. And so almost nobody fits this. So just quickly on this, the average job before the Great Recession, the corporation was getting 250 applicants. So the idea that there's nobody applying is not true. Um, the, so your odds on getting a job if you apply you know, online are you know, about half of a percent, right? So th it's the churning through of applicants and nobody gets a job based on potential anymore, right? You have to have already done the job before and that narrows the set. So that's why we can't, you know, that's why it's hard to hire. Yeah, and I see it uh, really kind of almost in two buckets. So 
the way I've often described it is, you know, we we created these career ladders, and then for start people just starting out, we knocked out the bottom three rungs. Yeah. And I mean, I have literally seen job ads for new employees, so new jobs, looking for three years of experience. Yes. How do, on what planet does that make sense? And then kind of further up the food chain, what I've also seen is this very, you and I've talked about this, um, you know, in the management ranks, there used to be, I'll call them trainer jobs, right? So, you know, you ran, you know, the region, right? And then you maybe ran three or four regions together. And then maybe you ran a small country and then maybe, and you were kind of moved around a bit, but also, you know, you, you got to get your management training and experience in places where, you know, if you made a mistake, it wasn't catastrophic, right? It, you know, you could learn from it. Um, and those jobs have disappeared. Right. And right. so what I'm seeing at the kind of higher end of the food chain is these vast leaps people have to make. And, you know, one of the things we know about, about senior leadership is emotional intelligence, understanding yourself, being open to feedback, even critical feedback, creating an environment where people can bring you difficult to hear information. You know, there's a whole mountain of soft, I'll call them soft skills, but essential skills. If you're going to be a leader in a un highly uncertain environment, those are not optional. You know, the, yeah. the leaders that don't have that pretty quickly crash and burn yeah. uh, and take their companies with them. And so I, one of the things I wonder is how do we help people develop, you know, yeah. and maybe, right. maybe the whole burgeoning area of executive coaching is one response to this. Um, yeah. but I don't know that that's going to do it for you. It's a really great point because those are also things that we learn best by doing. And it's also the cheapest way to do it, right? Just to give people a stretch assignments to push them along. And what it's driven, and, and you, you've seen this, Rita, is what it drives is a weird career path where you skip across companies. Yes. Because the, the leap is too big here. So you have to go outside, you go to a smaller company, uh, and maybe within the company, they allow you to change uh, a little bit because you've had experience at the brand name company, you can do something a little different here. And then because you've managed, you've done the job in a small company, then the big company will bring you back in to do the job that you couldn't get internally there because it was too big of a leap, right? So you wow. see this weird career path now of hopping around. Oh, yeah. But you have uh, yeah. to have some skill to do that, right? And Reed Hoffman, and Reed Hoffman calls it the tour of duty career. But I hadn't thought about that angle of like, you have to do that because you don't have the glide yeah, right. path inside your own organization. Right. You know, an industry that I just, this is just wild to me. It's like pharma is not actually nine or 10 big significant pharma companies. It's like one giant kind of organism. So if I'm in a meeting with, let's say it's Pfizer, you know, and there's 20 people in the meeting, three of them will be from former BMS, three of them will be from former Merck, three of them will be from, and I think it's part of that phenomenon, right? Um, yeah. And that, and the fact that we pay people in an insane way, right? So yeah. if your skills have improved hundred percent and I look at you and I go, oh, I'm sorry, you know, the bonus pool for, the, for this year is only 6%. And if I give you, you know, what you really deserve, then I've got to shortcut somebody else. And it's like, what is this insane way of thinking? So at Netflix, they would argue they've broken that. They try to, they try to benchmark their salaries to market. Um, and they actually yeah. encourage their people to go out and interview with other companies, like go find out what you're worth. What you're worth. <laughs> yeah. well, they, of course, have a ton of money too, which, which helps. Well, that helps. <laughs> yeah, that always helps. But it is a good point too about this, the, the current problem, which we could talk about too, if you'd like, uh, that companies are pointing out that, people don't wanna apply for jobs. There's some truth to this. Um, 
because the snapback has been so great. That's basically the story, right? Once restricted restrictions lifted in places like retail, you know, suddenly companies wanted to hire millions of people all at once and they, they just weren't out there. Some of the evidence uh, suggests, I just did a report on this for the Indeed folks and looking at some of their data. Uh, some of the evidence suggests that the single most important reason why people are not hustling to take jobs now is because they believe the jobs are going to be better. And this is because of media discussions, and they might be right, you know, tight labor market, employers are raising pay, they haven't raised it very much. It's actually falling quite a bit in real terms, because inflation is up now. But if you're an employer and trying to figure out how do we deal with this, one way is exactly what you just described, to tell uh, people that you're recruiting, look, if you're worried about the fact that if you take a job now, pay is going to go up, and you will have missed the window, you won't miss it here, because we're going to be benchmarking. And if the market goes up in the next six months, we'll raise your pay, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you can tell them that, those people who are sitting on the sidelines and don't want to jump now because they figure the offers will be even better, um, you could deal with it that way, right? But you have to be willing to, they have to be willing to believe you. And are you trustworthy? There's another problem, right? Well, right. And, and <laughs> you know, I, I always joke that employers have done a fabulous job of teaching employees that they're not loyal and employees are now more than happy to return the favor. You know? <laughs> so. Exactly right. Right. Are people job hopping a lot? Yes. And the reason is almost every one of those people were hired away by some other employer. So, you know, if you say, you know, geez, people are not loyal anymore. Well, how many people are you hiring away from your competitors, right? Most of them, right? So, right. So and you're not, you're not even looking at the people who, for whatever reason, perhaps through no fault of their own, are not employed. And that's right. the other really weird dynamic, which right. is you've got perfectly talented people who, right. you know, were on the wrong end of a layoff or had a personal emergency, you know, whatever their issue is. Um, it doesn't mean they're not useful. <laughs> and, so there's a great piece of labor uh, economics on this um, by uh, Larry Katz and, oh God, Bob, um, anyway, come to me in a second. Um, and what they did is they looked at the difference in the experience of people who were laid off um, versus those whose plants had closed, right? And uh, what they discovered was if you were laid off because of a plant closure, it was way easier for you to get another job than if you were laid off. Why is that? The reason seems to be because employers believe if you were laid off, it could be because you were a bad worker. You weren't fired, but they think, and they may be right, that a lot of employers use planned layoffs as a way to get rid of their worst performers, right? Um, so there's enormous discrimination against people who are unemployed, right? And that is a real problem um, because they're using this We'll remember this was Groucho Marx's line, right? I wouldn't join any club that would have me as a member. And if you want to work for me, that must mean there's something wrong with you, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So do you, do you, in your new book, do you see any kind of hopeful signs of a reassessment or a rethinking of this employer-employee contract? I mean, you know, we know uh, 
from a strategy perspective, you know, we know that if you've got a whole workforce full of disgruntled, disaffected, disengaged people, that is eventually going to show up yeah. in your years. Yeah, and right. Most you child for this would be Kraft Heinz, right after yeah. the after right. the. Well, I think what you said earlier is the is the solution here, and that is, you know, the people at the top don't know. And one of the things that's different now compared to a generation ago is the people at the top have enormous discretion. They don't delegate much stuff anymore. Everything has to be run up to the top to see what's going on. I mean, if you've had this experience, but we have where CEOs actually want to look at the slides you're going to show their employees in executive training. I mean, it's bizarre. Don't you have anything better to do? Apparently not, right? So can we get better information to those folks so that they would see you know, this actually would pay off here. Because the problem right now is they don't think so. Uh, the investment community doesn't think so either. Um, and it's not because they're stupid, it's because they haven't seen the information. A lot of them did not get any management training. You know, if you think about the leaders of the tech companies, for example, the founders, uniformly they had no management experience and no management training, right? So, you know, they didn't get it along the way. Many of them don't even get it in business school, you know, because it's so heavily dominated by the uh, optimization-based fields. They don't even come away with much of it there. Mm -hmm. So somebody has to make the case and we have to get them the data and the empirical results that show this really pays off. And as you know, in the academic world, that has never been, at least in the fields of management, the primary interest is not to demonstrate that something works, right? It's to demonstrate that some theory works or to come up with some explanation that you can generalize into a theory or something like that, you know? So it hasn't been the big priority to demonstrate that certain practices are effective. Even though when you do it as a professor, you discover everybody pays attention to you outside, but oh, inside yeah. our own little tent, people don't care that much about it. Right? Well, so. true, true. Yeah, and this is one of Jeff Pfeffer's frustrations, right? Which is, you know, he's done decades of work demonstrating that, mm -hmm. you know, high, uh, I don't know what you would call it, high commitment, high good jobs kind of approaches to yep. managing people produces outstanding results. Like yep. this, right. this is a very predictable phenomenon. And yet yep. it seems disconnected from the way many companies are run. And I think part of it's because we look at people as a cost. Um, yeah, and the question is, why do they do that? Which is an interesting question. And, and this is a, 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 a part of what my book is about is that financial accounting is biased against human capital in all mm -hmm. kinds of ways, which we kind of knew already. But if you start stacking up all the ways, it's kind of stunning um, how much financial accounting prefers capital assets to human assets. We just don't know what to do with human assets. Mm -hmm. And we don't think of them as assets because they don't meet the financial definition of assets, right? Because people can walk away, everything around people is seen as a variable cost and can't be a, an asset. Even if we're looking at assets that are physical, they wear out, they go away, you could sell them, they become obsolete, but those are seen as much more permanent than employees. And so the way we treat them makes them appear much more expensive, much less valuable, than physical assets, right? And that's the root of the problem, I think. And do you think that's a solvable thing? Well, I think um, it is explainable uh, to people and uh, smart people will figure that out, you would think. But, you know, we've had research for a while showing that uh, um, you could bet in the sense of making investments in companies that are human capital more sophisticated, best places to work sort of places. 
and that you would beat the market if you invested in those companies, right? Um, so which means, by the way, it's not just that they're going to perform better. Uh, they're going to perform better than anyone expected if you didn't look at that aspect of it. So simply by looking at that aspect, you could make money in the market. Is the punch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that hasn't really rung their bells yet, you know. Um, but then again, you know, you look at the entire investment community, which has not accepted the fact that typically investments in stock markets are random, right? By the market average, right? I mean, that's taken 50 years to start to catch on, right? So maybe it's, maybe we're not so unique in that problem. <laughs> maybe. Well, I am hopeful, you know, I mean, I look at, um, I do look at, you know, people coming into the workforce now, and I couldn't tell you why, but a lot of them seem to have a different set of expectations for yeah. I think what work is what they're going to learn, you know, who's responsible for your own development. I mean, when I first started at the Columbia Business School, right, in, in, in the executive education area, you know, it was really easy. Like you sat down and you had lunch with the head of HR for AT&T and they had their roster of people to be developed and you had your list of courses. And by the time lunch was done, your courses were full. They were happy. They'd tick their boxes and you were done. <laughs> you know, like today, and I know this is a point you've often made, which is companies seem to have completely abrogated their any responsibility yeah, they don't care. to invest right. in and develop people. Right. And, you know, an executive, it's an interesting point about executive education. If you look at executive MBAs, uh, at least our executive MBA program, maybe this was true for years too, the requirement through the 1990s was to be admitted, your employer had to agree, not just to give you the time off, but to pay for the entire program. Right. And then uh, the company started pulling back on that. Uh, and now I'd say for most students, they're paying for most of it themselves. Okay. Oh yeah, we had this most like 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 fisticuffs debates about whether our executive MBAs could have access to the Columbia Career Placement Office. We had the same debate, huge debate, and that's now been resolved. The answer is yes, and because again, same phenomena. A lot of people are paying for their own way, and a lot of them, interestingly, are people that are switching their trajectory in some meaningful way. So they came up through engineering. They decided, right. right. Yeah. And we know why, uh, right, we know why. And the reason is the company, you can't do it internally anymore. So you need to have the credential to make the switch. And here's my story about why that took place. And it's because, as you say, of the collapse of internal development. So what happened before the head at AT&T, they had a function and a department and a budget to develop these people because in the Jack Welsh expression, the corporation owned all the top talent, right? Now it's P&L. And so you don't go to the head of human resources for your company. You have to go to your P&L boss and they're going to pay for it, right? Or maybe not. If they pay for it, uh, they expect you to go back to your desk and keep doing the job you were doing before to pay them back for the fact that they spent this money on you. The whole reason you went to the program was to do something different, right? That could be valuable in the long run. The problem is within your PL, they don't have those roles. Those are roles that you might see across the whole organization. So once we took responsibility from the center where you could see these development opportunities and move people around, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense for the local PL to invest in developing you for jobs that they can't use, right? Yeah. And so that's how everything started to fall apart, right? Uh, you know, the thing, Reed, I, I think this, and maybe you do too, 
big advantage, big corporations should have such advantages over small ones. And yet what we, because of things like this, because of the ability to have all these internal resources and make use of them and rearrange them and plan people's careers and give them certainty and all this sort of stuff and give them opportunities to learn. And instead we move consistently toward trying to make big organizations a series of small, tiny ones. And the reason is this idea about incentives, right? That that way you feel accountable, which might be true, but in the process, we're losing all kinds of other opportunities, right? Oh, yeah. And I see it. I see it vividly in the innovation kind of area. Yeah. Exactly. So, I, I mean, I must do this three or four times a week. I'll talk to some person with a title like innovation leader or head of innovation. <laughs> and they're miserable. They're like vibrating with stress because they've been given this enormously complex job to do. They're passionate about it. They might have a small team. But. Can they get on the CEO's calendar? No. <laughs> does the do the PL leaders want to talk to them? No. Uh, does somebody want to support them in having an experiment? And inevitably, what happens is they'll bang away at this for two or three years, and then there's some kind of economic setback or whatever, and people go looking for something to draw a red line through, and that's the function that goes. And so you, you know, and I think you see the same thing on the people side, which is, is this, this sort of you're right, uh, abdicating what could be the advantages of being a large organization. Uh, yeah, and then, as you say, we try to make individuals responsible for structural problems, which they can't. Right. Right. So, yeah. You know, yeah. you might as well take that job for two years, put your feet up because you can't solve it, uh, and they're going to fire you in two years anyway. So, yeah, so learn while you're there and make you know have a lot of lunches. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to impose too much more on your time. So, um, how should people learn more? What can they? When, when's the new book out? By the way, the, the next one. Ooh, well, uh, it's Oxford University Press. It probably won't be out for this till the spring or so. Um, oh, that's exciting. Well, we should you should have you back when uh, yeah, when it comes out. That would be good. Uh, although I think you pretty much have uh, already know what it's going to say. So <laughs> there you go. I'm really looking forward to. It. I think it's such a critical issue. So, how do we get smarter about this stuff? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I try to publish. A, I've been publishing over the years in the Harvard Business Review a series of articles about these kinds of issues and things, you know. But I, th I think the simple answer about how to get smarter if you're in a position to make this happen is to uh, collect data and analyze it on these issues. This is the one most important thing about the data science push into these topics is not that they're coming up with good answers that are any better than we had before, but they're effective in getting the data together so we can look at it. And you learn some things, you can for sure, about how expensive are things, right? There's not going to be magic bullets out of these things, but at the very least, it'll show you that the things we're talking about really matter. And they're really costly if you make mistakes. And if you do them right, they could really pay off. So that's in your own organizations, that's the thing to do. I love it. That's great. Well, it's so great to catch up with you again. Good. Thank um, you, Rita. Nice I to see you. I hope you do it face-to-face. -face one of the great things about this book is it doesn't purport to give you answers, but what it does give you is these fabulous checklists of things to really think through as you're figuring out, you know, work from home, work from office, you know, what. And I think the big message of the book is be deliberate about it. Don't just fall into it. Be, be thoughtful about the choices that you need to make. That's right. Yeah, good. Thank great. you so much. Good. All right. Thank Thanks you very so much. much. Have a great weekend and happy October. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is so long. <laughs>